Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 185, Back to Reality. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. It's only been, I think, two days since the last episode, but Petko Savov becoming a patron in that time, so he gets a solo shout-out. Thank you so much, Petko. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we covered the second half of 1908, as the former left wing of the MRO under Sandansky disarmed and embraced the Young Turk Revolution by forming a political party, while the former right faction of the MRO did the same, minus the disarming part. However, there isn't much evidence either performed well in the subsequent election, so all the work hasn't really gotten them much. Then, a diplomatic snub and a railway strike created an opportunity for Bulgaria to finally declare full independence from the Ottoman Empire, with Ferdinand becoming Tsar and the country nationalizing the rail lines of the Oriental Railway Company in the process. This brought Bulgaria and the Ottomans to the brink of war, as Austria-Hungary itself annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, further hurting relations between them and Russia, and hardening the alliance networks currently forming all around Europe. So, as we head now into 1909, relations between the Ottomans and the Balkan states remain somewhat tense, although there was that kind of secret understanding between Serbia and the Ottomans. Still, overall, the port may have offered alliance to nearly all the Balkan states, but the young Turks were still kind of working out their foreign policy, and they knew that the Ottoman Empire was at this moment quite militarily vulnerable and needed to avoid war at all costs. The question is, can they? But first, to the socialists. I mentioned last time how the broad and narrow socialist factions were engaging their usual infighting as they attempted to find a way towards a united front. Well, on the 1st of January 1909, they did manage to do just that and join together again about five years after they split. Yet, despite their, you know, combining their resources, they remain a virtual non-entity on the broader political stage, having failed to gain any seats in the National Assembly elections last year. But, you know, Working closely together, maybe that could change. This new united group began criticizing the right-wing approach of aiding Bulgaria in potentially annexing Macedonia, arguing instead that the best approach was to fight for greater freedoms for all the people within the Ottoman Empire and to push for the creation of a federation in order to accomplish that goal. So, again, showing why the left-wing more or less supported the Young Turk Revolution because they also wanted to give more freedoms to the people within the Ottoman Empire. Continuing with internal politics, most political parties had accepted the Declaration of Independence and Ferdinand's new title quite gladly. However, the agrarians had their own views. While they weren't against independence in principle, they were dead set against its ramifications. Additional costs to the country, uh, basically you know, having to pay that portion of the Ottoman debt, we talked about that last time. The loss of privileged trading status with the Ottomans, which was hurt a lot of Bulgarian businesses and farmers. So, And, of course, well, the risk of war. So the agrarians were sticking to their principles that practical concerns should take precedence over things like 
titles and sort of formal status as an independent state. You know, that, th that these things were more symbolic, but that the practical ramifications had to be the main priority. But the agrarians hardly had any power to change things, uh, although they did point out that Ferdinand's new title technically violated the Constitution, which, to be fair, it did. The Constitution specified that, uh, you know, basically the Bulgarian leader would be kniaz or, or kind of prince, and so suddenly referring to him as Tsar technically violated it, but nobody really cared. Otherwise, the early months of the year were full of negotiations over Bulgaria's independence and, again, that potential taking on of a portion of the Ottoman national debt. In January, Russia forwarded a proposal by which they would forgive the remaining war reparations owed to them by the Ottomans from the 1877-1878 war in exchange for the Ottomans giving up their claims on Bulgaria and, you know, accepting its independence. In this deal, Bulgaria would also have to pay the Ottomans 82 million francs, which Bulgaria, because it didn't have that money, would borrow from Russia. Tsar Nicholas was deeply worried that Bulgaria was moving too close to Austria-Hungary and therefore wanted to offer these more generous terms to improve relations. Now, Bulgaria was okay with these terms, but both the Ottomans and the British were deeply concerned that this would make Bulgaria hopelessly dependent on Russia, because they'd be borrowing a bunch of money from them. And this is what they feared after 1878. And so, yeah, this would kind of make Bulgaria a prime place to act as a springboard from which Russia could finally take control of the Dardanelles Straits. Again, the thing Great Britain absolutely was against. However, Soon afterwards, Great Britain decided that these terms actually would work and ultimately withdrew its opposition, forcing the Ottomans to accept the deal as well because they weren't really in a good negotiating position to oppose it on their own. Again, the Young Turks didn't have a lot of strong allies. You know, they, they were kind of just new on the political diplomatic stage of Europe, and so they just weren't in a position to try to resist things by themselves. So... At this point, all the relevant powers, including Bulgaria, were asked to send delegates to Constantinople to basically negotiate all the final details. In the meantime, the Ottomans also found a settlement with Austria-Hungary over their annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Ironically, this was a little less of a difficult issue because the Ottomans, as I mentioned before, had very little ability to project power there anyways, so they weren't really losing anything. I mean, technically they lost this territory, but they kind of didn't have it anyways. So Vienna agreed to pay the Ottomans 2.2 million lira for, and the annexation was legalized. So for the Ottomans, you know, they didn't lose much and they won 2.2 million lira, no problem. Whereas again, Bulgaria was kind of a much more dangerous situation for them and a potential adversary. That said, while the Ottomans and the Austro-Hungarians were happy about uh, the settlement of the Bosnian issue, Italy was very much not. Now at this time, Italy was still part of the Triple Alliance between them, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. The treaty on which that alliance was based said that Italy should be compensated with some Austrian territories on the Adriatic coast. However, the Austro-Hungarians basically refused, creating deep resentment in Rome towards its erstwhile allies. And so, yeah, you know, Italy felt it should get something out of this deal, that's what's in the treaty, and Austria-Hungary just said no. Otherwise, Serbia's opposition to the annexation was soon overcome by Austria-Hungary mobilizing its army in threatening war, forcing Serbia to accept that, yes, this territory now belonged to Austria-Hungary. 
Russia, as I mentioned last time, was furious that it wasn't compensated with an agreement to move its warships through the Dardanelles Straits, but it too was forced to accept the status quo that Austria-Hungary now possessed Bosnia and Herzegovina. However, St. Petersburg, like Rome, felt deeply betrayed by Vienna as a result. In other words, Austria-Hungary got what it wanted. It got international recognition for its annexation. Everyone agreed, but the price was high, as Vienna made many more enemies in Rome, Belgrade, and St. Petersburg. Otherwise, late winter of 1909 saw a new law passed in Romania, which gave some people in northern Dobroja full citizenship, basically those who'd been living there since it was annexed from the Ottomans, and stipulated that Bulgarians who decided to leave the region would have to sell their land directly to the Romanian government at reduced prices, essentially another step in the process of kind of Romanian colonization of the region and gradually pushing out its ethnic Bulgarian population to kind of solidify Romania's control over northern Dobruja. Although the fact that citizenship wasn't kind of automatically granted to more recent Romanian migrants there did make a lot of Romanians very angry. So yeah, it, it was still a kind of complicated issue and not everyone in Romania was happy with the situation. But just to note that this is kind of another step towards the kind of de-Bulgarianization of, at this point, just northern Dobruja. Now, this brings us back to those negotiations in Constantinople over Bulgaria's independence. Over the previous few months, many officers and soldiers in the Ottoman capital had become frustrated with the Committee for Union and Progress. Again, those are the Young Turks. Um, and I'll, I can just refer to them as the CUP. So when I say the CUP, I mean the Committee for Union and Progress, which is the same as the Young Turks. Religious fundamentalists were also very upset at the compromises made to non-Muslims in the restored constitution and were looking for ways to strike at the CUP. So again, remember, the Committee for Union and Progress after the revolution, they gave more rights to uh, ethnic and religious minorities within the Ottoman Empire in an attempt to kind of strengthen the empire. But just like when it happened before, this upset religious fundamentalists who felt that the status of Muslims within the empire was diminishing. So yeah, it's going to get messy. As a result, while the negotiations over Bulgaria's independence were ongoing, a kind of counter-revolution against the CUP erupted in Constantinople. This opposition was initially successful, pushing the CUP to flee the Ottoman capital. These events also triggered a series of pogroms against Armenians, Assyrians, and Greeks. Because remember, the people leading these are kind of fundamentalists who don't like the ethnic and religious minorities of the empire, who they saw as their enemies. And so many of them used this as an opportunity to strike out against them. However, within a few weeks, forces loyal to the CUP managed to retake the city and regain control of the Ottoman Empire. The chief of the general staff of the army was, who kind of led this, was a young man by the name of Mustafa Kemal, which should sound familiar, and I'll just preview a little that we'll, we'll get back to him another time. He'll be important. Now, interestingly enough, the victorious army that retook Constantinople on behalf of the CUP also contained Bulgarian volunteers led by Sandansky. So, you know, finally, uh, uh, some Bulgarians helped take Constantinople as they did back in the Byzantine times a few times with uh, some Byzantine emperors who were exiled, if you remember, all those many years ago. Now, as we know, Sandansky was a big fan of the CUP, and so he decided that he would actually get up there and fight to help restore them to power. 
This ironically again led to the only case of Bulgarian troops actually parading through the streets of a city that they had so often fought to conquer in centuries past. Now, once the city was retaken, Sultan Abdul Hamid II was accused of plotting with the counter-revolutionaries and was therefore deposed in favor of his brother, who became Sultan Mehmet V. But while his brother had until recently ruled as an absolute monarch, at least in theory, as you know, you know the sultans haven't had that much power for quite a long time, which is why I haven't talked much about the Ottoman sultans for many, many, many episodes, because they just aren't as important. Now, Mehmet was said to be even more of a figurehead than his brother had been, as Ottoman politics really moved beyond the sultan. Still, Sandansky, for his part, was furious that the CUP had kept the sultan installing his brother instead of going all the way and making the empire a full democratic republic. So to recap, in the last year, the Ottoman Empire was taken over by liberal reformers who, while being liberal, mostly just wanted to you know, re restore the empire. And these reformers brought back the old Ottoman constitution and ended the ostensible absolute power of the sultan. This angered many traditional elements who embarked on a failed counter-revolution. In the meantime, the empire was struggling to win allies in the Balkans or on the European stage as it lost more and more territory with the independence of Bulgaria and the loss of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, ironically, during the uprising, the Ottoman parliament had met for the first time outside the capital because when they met, the capital wasn't under CUP control. But still, that Ottoman parliament in its first sitting formally accepted the deal to recognize Bulgaria's independence. Within a week or so, all the remaining Balkan states and all the great powers followed, and just like that, Bulgaria was now fully independent and universally recognized. But the Ottomans by now were deeply worried about Bulgarian military expansion. Right? As we've talked of many times, Bulgaria spends about a third of its budget on its army, and its army is pretty well trained, well equipped. You know, the, the, there's a reason that in this era, one of the nicknames for Bulgaria is the Prussia of the Balkans, and Prussia back in the past was often referred to as an army with a state. So all that is to say, you know, the army in Bulgaria gets a tremendous amount of the resources, and the army has a tremendous amount of influence. And with the Ottoman army being so weak at this point, they're a little worried. The Bulgarian Declaration of Independence in general had caught the Ottomans off guard at a time when the new regime was again still kind of finding its feet. The Ottomans had hoped that they would impose a deal which would give Bulgaria huge financial burdens by giving them a part of the Ottoman debt, and that these financial burdens would prevent Bulgaria from being able to spend so lavishly on its army, but as we know, that basically didn't work out. Instead, Bulgaria just had to take a loan from the Russians, which it could pay off over time, allowing it to continue to spend and spend on the military. Now, on the other hand, two days after recognizing Bulgaria's independence, the Ottoman state also officially ended reforms in Macedonia. Now, I couldn't find any good sources that talked specifically about the reasons or kind of more details about what this meant, but my best guess is that the CUP felt foreign pressure was off them in the wake of accepting Bulgaria's independence, and so they didn't have to kind of put in those resources and could focus their attention elsewhere. Again, coming back to what I've talked about before, that, you know, the, the fact that both, you know, the, the left wing of the former MRO under Sandansky and the CUP were sort of allies and both ostensibly wanted reforms in the Ottoman Empire was true, but what was important is that they wanted reforms for different ends. And this really gets to that point, 
right? Sandansky assumed that the CUP would continue implementing reforms and giving more rights to the people in Macedonia because, well, he thought it was the right thing to do. But the CUP was only going to do that insofar as it helped them make the empire stronger. And the moment it didn't do that, they were going to stop. Now, at the same time, the Ottoman parliament banned any kind of national organization, i.e. any organization that specifically represents a minority ethnic group. So, as a result, the Union of Bulgarian Constitutional Clubs, the political party formed by the MRO's former right wing, banned, leading most of its members to just go right back to underground activities in Macedonia. It also banned groups like trade unions, which, again, was a large part of the point. The CUP was feeling basically in a stronger, better position. It was now moving to eliminate national minority movements in an attempt to forge a unified Ottoman identity and to get rid of any of these organizations or groups that could potentially ally with foreign powers or in some way challenge their authority. Again, showing why, you know, working with the CUP just because the, the they agreed on the means when they when the kind of ends that they were trying to get to were different was probably naive on the part of Sandansky. Tied in with this was the growing realization on the part of Sandansky and the People's Federative Party he now ran that their optimistic belief that the Ottoman Empire would quickly be turned into a free federation of nations may have been a bit optimistic. The party was also being hit by more infighting, as the official leader of the party by now was resentful of Sandansky for stealing the limelight, leading it to split by the late summer of 1909. So essentially, both Bulgarian political parties in the Ottoman Empire were now basically gone, and the CUP in Constantinople was cementing its power at the expense of Bulgarians who had placed their faith in it. But the aftermath of the Young Turk Revolution was also being felt very strongly in Greece. Now you'll recall from last time that Crete had declared union with Greece following the Young Turk Revolution, but Greece basically had said no because it was fearful of a new war or even just upsetting the Ottomans. This made many Greeks anger angry because, you know, they don't particularly maybe appreciate the geopolitical stance that Athens is trying to take. And they're like, hey, these fellow Greeks want to join us. Why are we saying no? And in particular, a lot of Greek military officers were furious about this. And they responded by forming a secret society called the Military League. The League not only wanted a more aggressive policy vis-a-vis Crete, but for Greece to generally emulate the reforms happening in the Ottoman Empire to kind of make it stronger. Because again, remember, by this point, the Greek state is badly mismanaged, it's facing a massive debt left over from its war of independence, and is being stricken by deep and kind of harmful political divisions. All this came to a head in August of 1909, when Prime Minister Rallis of Greece ordered a crackdown on the military league, essentially forcing their hand. The result was a quick, bloodless coup, though really a very mild one as coups go, as the group mostly just demanded policy changes. Uh, It's not like they kind of killed all their enemies or something like that. But despite the coup, despite these demands, the government kind of dragged its feet. And basically that worked. Uh, The League gradually began to fall apart as they weren't able to kind of continue their momentum and to maintain their sort of unity in the face of all the red tape the government was throwing in front of their attempted reforms. Still, they did manage to get the government to invest more in the military, 
And some of the officers also went to Crete to convince the prime minister of Crete, a man named Venizelos, to come to Athens and help them out. It took about a year, but this resulted in Venizelos winning a dominating 83% of seats in the parliament of Greece in the 1910 election. And just like that, Greece now had a dynamic new leader ready to implement reforms. And again, if you thought Mustafa Kemal was a familiar name, and Venizelos should be a familiar name as well, he is going to be quite important. Otherwise, the last months of 1909 were fairly quiet though 52 Bulgarian tobacco factories did kind of form a new organization called United Tobacco Factories, which together controlled about 70% of the country's production, and yet another example of the kind of growing power of cartels and such in dominating Bulgaria's nascent industry. I also can't help but mention an interesting incident when Ferdinand and Queen Eleanor, well, Tsaritsa now, Queen, visited Germany in December and were guests at a banquet held by the Kaiser. Ferdinand was leaning out of a window and chatting with some other guests when the Kaiser came by, laughed, and just slapped Ferdinand on his butt. The Tsar was furious and demanded an immediate apology, to which the Kaiser responded that no apology was needed for a good joke. Ferdinand left the event fuming, and one onlooker noted that, quote, I fear Germany's Balkan policy is going to feel this blow on the backside, end quote. Now, this really shows, and others have certainly said this, the extent to which the Kaiser was not so good at diplomacy and that, frankly, if he knew anything about Ferdinand, he probably should have known that he would not have found that very funny. So, yeah, the Kaiser, he may not have been very repentant at the moment, but once he realized the ramifications of what he had done, he changed his tune. And, well... He realized the ramifications when Ferdinand took a whole host of arms contracts that he had originally intended for German companies over to France. A few months later, at the funeral of King Edward VII of, Eng of Great Britain at Buckingham Palace, Ferdinand was chatting with U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt when the Kaiser took the American president aside and said, That man is not worth knowing. I wouldn't talk to him in your place. He's a miserable creature. End quote before loudly narrating that he was going to introduce the president of the king of Spain. So, it seems the Kaiser was ready to match Ferdinand in a battle of petty insults. Then, on the train back, Ferdinand also found himself in conflict with one Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary. Remember, he at this point is the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. President Roosevelt himself described the event, writing, quote, The Tsar and the Archduke came to London on the same express train. The Tsar's private carriage was already on it, and the Archduke had to put his on at Vienna. Each wished to have his carriage ahead of the other, but the Archduke triumphed and had his place nearest to the engine, the Tsar's carriage coming next, and then the dining carriage. The Archduke was much pleased at his success, and rode next to the engine in purple splendor, and all went well until dinner time, when he sent word to the Tsar saying that he should like to walk through his carriage to the dining saloon and the Tsar sent back word that he could not. Accordingly, breathing stertorously, he had to wait until the station came, get out and get into the dining saloon, and get out again and pop back into his own carriage. This struck all the brother royalties as a most serious matter, and the German emperor heatedly sided with the Austrians. End quote. Now, 
Uh, again, I just found that a rather amusing anecdote and showing the extent to which these small little personal slights are really kind of setting the, the, the tone for a lot of European diplomacy. Constantine notes in his biography of Ferdinand that, quote, it is not e always easy to decide how much these events were due to personal dislike and how much they were a part of Ferdinand's balancing act between the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente, end quote. So, yeah, again, you know, to what extent is this just Ferdinand being Ferdinand and to what extent is he actually playing a political game? Because, you know, both are kind of true. Ferdinand is a very adept political animal, but he also has pretty thin skin. Indeed, on the note of that kind of balancing act, Ferdinand would soon make a rather triumphant visit to France, which saw the government in Paris really put out the red carpet for him, much to the new Tsar's delight. Overall, though, 1909 had been a very successful year for Bulgaria. A German political journal stated on its annual review that, quote, there is no doubt that Bulgaria can be proud of the fact that she, more than any other country in the year 1909, has achieved the greatest political progress. Without any sacrifices worth mentioning, she has obtained her independence and achieved the status of a kingdom, has improved her finances and concluded a foreign loan. At the same time, she has obtained Austria's new friendship while renewing the old one with Russia. End quote. So yeah, it's true that Ferdinand is, you know, making some people quite upset and playing all these games, but ultimately Bulgaria is in a pretty strong position at this point. It has a world-class army, small but very good, and Austria-Hungary and Russia are both trying to be friends with it, while the Ottomans are, you know, trying to be friendly because they're kind of afraid of Bulgaria. Things are kind of looking up. Indeed, Ferdinand's long game of playing Russia off against Austria-Hungary, pushing each to compete for Bulgaria's attention, is working. Likewise, he seems to have maintained a good balance between the two great factions that were engulfing Europe, the soon-to-be Central Powers and the Triple Entente. Yet, at this moment, the Tsar was still internally gloomy, deeply concerned at the prospect of war in Europe and feeling more pressure than ever at home to finally do something about Macedonia. So, with the young Turks reversing their more lenient policies hard, everyone in Macedonia, Bulgarians and Greeks, those on the left and the right, were getting more and more fed up with the status quo in the Ottomans, and in particular with the Committee of Union and Progress. More and more, there seemed to be a feeling that, 30 years after the empty promises of the Congress of Berlin, the only way to finally see real change in Macedonia was by uniting against the Ottomans. But time will tell whether the beleaguered Christian population of that territory can manage such a feat. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Next time, we'll dive into 1910, when some former MRO members will attempt to make their next move following the failure of their political parties. Bulgaria will continue a flurry of diplomatic moves to establish its new position as an independent state, and a rather interesting expedition will depart Bulgaria for a very unexpectedly far-off place. So don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the, pod, the podcast website, bghistorypodcast.com, for more information about this and every episode, and I'll see you in the next one.